But uh, this is such an important book. Uh, this is such an important topic for us uh, in God's mind. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who is perhaps one of the most uh, significant human beings to live as far as impact, um, thought that this sort of theme was an important theme to emphasize. And uh, this letter is a very important letter written to a very important people in a very important city. And despite the trends maybe in what's popular nowadays, Romans stands as a, an incredibly important book of the Bible. It has had a huge impact on the faith and a huge impact on the world. John Stott, uh, the pastor and Bible commentator, says the following, speaking of one person who was impacted, Aurelius Augustinus, known to the world as Augustine of Hippo, destined to become the greatest Latin father of the early church, was both a slave of his sexual passions and the object of his mother Monica's prayers for many years. During the summer of the year 386, he was 32 years old. He went out into the garden of his lodging, seeking solitude. He says in his confessions, the tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains, metaphorically. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree and let my tears flow freely. Suddenly, I heard a voice from the nearby house, chanting as it might be a boy or a girl, saying and repeating over and over again, pick up and read, pick up and read. I interpreted solely as a divine command to me to open the book and read the first chapter I might find. So I hurried back to the place where I had put down the book of the apostle when I got up. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first passage in which my eye lit, not in riots and drunken parties, not in eroticism and indecencies, not in strife and rivalry, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in its lusts. I neither wished nor needed to read further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. And thus, Augustine started his journey of following the Lord as he read that passage from Romans. And he himself changed Christianity. A thousand years later, this book... The letter to the Romans was to change the life of one Martin Luther and through him to change Christianity. Luther writes, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just, angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasp that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. 
Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. He would later say Romans is worthy. Not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. This is the wonderful book that we're going to be studying for the next year. Um, I'm sure you've seen impact of the book of Romans. I have a good friend who is in Christian leadership, has been for some years. He came to faith by reading the book of Romans, cover to cover, beginning to end. Uh, we also use Romans, right, to, to proclaim the gospel. It's a wonderful and simple way to, to explain the truth of Christianity. Anyone here ever use what's called the Roman road? Uh, it just means using the verses in Romans to go through the gospel. And there's different variants of it, but here, here they are. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and then is saved. And of course we'd want to teach them about the life in Christ. Described in Romans 12. I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God. Present your bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This book has many riches for us. It is something that we want to dig into. We want to understand we want to have it change our lives. We want to have it define our understanding of the faith, of what Christianity is. God, I think, has lots in store for us in this series. So let's pray, and then we'll read the passage for today, uh, cover some background material, then actually dig into the passage. But let's pray and ask the Lord, even today, to impact us with this wonderful book. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is living and active. Lord, we thank you for the fruit the amazing fruit, the amazing impact that Romans has had on your people, on the world, on us. And now, Lord, as we begin this series, we ask for today your blessing on the teaching and proclamation of your word. I ask you to give us hearts to, to be inclined to you, ears to hear, and Lord, you'd change us through your word. Not because we are anything beyond our, uh, in ourselves, Lord, uh, we are capable of doing this, not that I am, but you are, and you use your word. So thank you. Be glorified in this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I want to read from chapter 1, the very beginning, where Paul greets the Romans. He says in Romans uh, 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, 
set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's Word, Romans 1, 1 through 7. We'll take time to dig in, but I, I want to cover a little bit of background about this book that will help us, I think, better understand it and appreciate it and apply it. This letter is, uh, that's what it was originally. We call it a book, but it's actually a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He wrote it when he was in the city of Corinth, sometime around the year 57 AD. We're not sure of the exact year. It's right around that time, 57 AD, when he was in Corinth. He wrote it before he sailed to Jerusalem. He wrote this to the church in Rome when Rome was really the center of the Roman Empire in every way. Population-wise, it was a city of around a million people, culturally-wise, politically-wise. It was the very center of, of society. It was diverse, incredibly diverse, particularly for a city in that day. Diverse socially, ethnically, and spiritually. It was crowded and chaotic and noisy. It was full of filth, but also of great beauty. And the church there was a young church, but it was thriving, it was doing well. And Paul was writing them because he anticipated visiting them. He wanted to go and be there with them. He planned to go visit with them and then go from there to Spain. He planned to do that after uh, he went to Jerusalem. So the plan was go to Jerusalem, then go to Rome. Now, if you know the rest of the story, it didn't happen, at least maybe on the same time scale that Paul anticipated because he went to Jerusalem and when he went there he was nearly beaten to death and then he was imprisoned for two years then he was shipwrecked in a storm then he was under house arrest in Rome for two years tried and then freed sometime around 62 AD so it was five years later when he was finally free to be with the Roman church five years worth of unplanned trials and just a side point, it's an example of how often God's timeline is not our timeline. Nevertheless, he did make it to Rome to be with them. He wanted to, to help them. He wanted to help them grow in their faith. He wanted to build a relationship with them. He wanted them to support him on, in his missionary work to Spain and beyond. This church, as I said, was a healthy church. It was likely founded by Jewish Christians who maybe went there after Pentecost. Uh, and brought the gospel, the good news of, of the Messiah, Jesus. Um, they, the Jews were subsequently banned from Rome in the, uh, in the year 49, AD 49, by the Emperor Claudius. It was likely because of disputes over Jesus. There's actually uh, writings that, that affirm there was a dispute over someone named Christos, and so it's Christ misspelled. Probably because the Jewish believers were proclaiming Christ in the synagogues. And there was controversy. And so Claudius uh, decided the best thing in his mind to do was just to make all the Jewish people leave the city. So they were banished from the city in the year 49. Um, Priscilla and Aquila mentioned in Acts and, and elsewhere were 
a couple that was, were banished during that time. They were believers and they went on to help Paul uh, in Ephesus and in Corinth. Uh, as a result, the Roman church was largely Gentile after that edict by Claudius. Uh, and then Claudius died, and his edict died with him in the year 54, and so the Jews were back in Rome. As a result, though, at the time that Paul writes this letter in 57, just three years after the, the edict is rescinded, um, there are some tensions, apparently, between the Jewish and Gentile believers. That's a major theme in this book. It's a major reason why he's writing what he does right here. It's important to understand that, that, that what Paul is going to go after in many ways is, is the disputed things between the Jews and the Gentiles and this question of righteousness. What is the righteousness of God? How are we righteous before God? How does the law fit into this? What has the Lord done? What does His Word say? And, and so Romans goes after this. Romans is not a book about everything. None of the letters are about everything. It doesn't cover everything here. It doesn't have the depth of doctrine of the church that you find in Ephesians. It doesn't have the high Christology, the, the picture of Christ and His glory that you find in Colossians. It doesn't address the depth of Christian leadership and character we find in 2 Corinthians. But it does go very deep in this idea of God's righteousness and this core aspect of the gospel. There are various themes that, are, that show up in in the letter to the Romans, of course, every, uh, every letter and every bit of scripture has a central theme. It's all about Jesus, ultimately, right? So, and through Jesus showing us the Father and the power of the Spirit. So Romans is a lot about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You'll see all three persons of the Trinity mentioned throughout. But this idea of righteousness is very prominent in it. This uh, idea of the righteousness of God. It's important for us to understand, by the way, that you're going to find in your English Bible, often it'll have the word justification as well, or just. Um, those are two different words in English, but really all from the same root in Greek, the original language. Um, so you'll see things about the righteousness of God, uh, the idea of being uh, righteous, the idea of justification. Justification is really the verb form of righteousness, is really what it is. It's this idea of being right, and being right in every way. Not just being correct, but actually being good. It's, it's about being in a right standing in who you are, being a righteous person, a good person. How do we know what that is? What is that? How do we define it? What does it mean? Uh, that's what Romans addresses here. And I think at the core for us, whether we've ever read Romans, whether we've ever encountered the truth of Christianity, that is a core issue for us all. What does it mean to be right, to be good? And Romans addresses this. It speaks of righteousness throughout. So you see it right, right in the beginning. In the beginning in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Paul, as he's introducing uh, things, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Amazingly good news. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, this is, this is why it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So right away, it introduces this main theme, the righteousness of God that is displayed through the gospel and displayed in many other ways. This discussion about the righteousness of God peaks in chapter 3. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So chapter 3 is going to address this righteousness of God and explain it. It goes on to describe the life in Christ that we have in terms of this righteousness in chapter 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. This new life that we have is, is about living as slaves of righteousness in the power of God. And then near the end of Romans... It says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So this is really a, a central theme. Now, as it addresses this issue, as we see this theme woven throughout the book, there will be other important sub-themes and things tied to it. The gospel, of course, is an important aspect. The good news of Christ. Uh, that is where the righteousness of God is revealed. Um, and so we'll see a lot about the gospel. We'll see things about faith and grace here. This idea of faith, of putting your trust in God and in His good news. This idea of grace, the free gift uh, throughout uh, we'll see this throughout Romans. So Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We heard that earlier. And are justified by His grace. So that word justified is made righteous, counted righteous. Are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So faith and, and grace are, are a part of this story of God's righteousness. The law is addressed in Romans as well. It defines what righteousness is. It's a key item of contention between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Paul will spend a lot of time talking about that. And he'll talk about God's plan for the Jews and how the Gentiles should relate to the Jews. He'll address hope in this, in this new life we have in Christ. Um, but at the core, we'll see throughout, is this idea of the righteousness of God. I think the outline given by uh, theologian Tom Schreiner is helpful. Um, and he outlines it this way. You don't need to remember this, but uh, verses one, chapter 1 is the gospel as the revelation of God's righteousness. And chapter 1 through 3, God's righteousness in his wrath against sinners. Uh, chapters 3 and 4, the saving righteousness of God. Chapters 5 through 8, hope as a result of righteousness by faith. And then 9 through 11, God's righteousness to Israel and the Gentiles. Then 12 through 15, God's righteousness in everyday life. And then 15 through 16, the extension of God's righteousness through the Pauline mission. And then final summary of the gospel of God's righteousness. So uh, just an outline 
that highlights this theme. Um, this theme may never be clickbait on the internet, but the righteousness of God is such an important thing to understand. Such an a important thing for us to know um, what God thinks. Such an important thing to know what God wants us to think. Such an important thing to know to transform our lives. And so with that in mind, let's uh, dig into our section today just with that background. I hope that background serves us as we go through this letter. Um, let's dig into our section. I want to talk about three things from this greeting that Paul gives in his introduction. He's going to introduce himself. He's going to introduce the good news, the gospel, and he's going to talk about the effect of the gospel. So we'll look at those three things. So first, Paul introduces himself. Verse 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So this is who Paul is. This is how he's introducing himself. Notice how he describes himself. It says, a servant of Christ Jesus. Um, the word is translated servant. It's probably more literally slave. A slave of Christ Jesus. Um, our culture has a, a background and an experience in this that makes that a word that's hard to understand because it meant something different back then. Slaves at that time were not like the slavery we've had here in the New World in the 18th and 19th century where, where a, a, an ethnic group was enslaved and, and degraded in that. Uh, slavery at the, this time was very different. It was not segregated by ethnicity. Often slaves were more educated and more gifted than, the, than their masters. They often had a, quite a bit of freedom and responsibility. Uh, nevertheless, they were owned. Uh, there were humans who were owned, and that's another topic that we could talk about, what Scripture teaches us, certainly not what God wants. But, but Paul uses this metaphor for himself to realize, to, to identify that he is not him, owned by himself, he's owned by Jesus. He belongs to someone else. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. This is his identity. This is how he sees himself as he relates to the Romans. This slavery that he has with Jesus is with a purpose, though. He's called to be an apostle. He's called by Jesus to be an apostle. An apostle is a delegated messenger. That's really what it is. And the apostles, when it uses it in this context in Scripture... It means a specially delegated messenger. There are a limited amount of apostles. They would have had to have seen the risen Lord. And Paul was one of those uh, later added to the group of apostles. And so he's a delegated messenger of Jesus himself to declare the good news of God and implement its effects. He's been set apart for the gospel of God. So Paul is a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He introduces this gospel, this good news here in the very beginning. The gospel is not just simply news that is good. And that's important for us to understand. This is why we often use the word gospel because it, it's different. It's distinctive from just saying good news because there's all sorts of good news we can share. Uh, there's all sorts of news that's worthy to be shared. Uh, Good things that are happening, good weather. Um, if there's a good result for your sports team, like I don't know if we'll see that today or not, but that, but that's good news as well. Uh, but but when it says gospel here, it means something more. It means God's special good news, uh, the good news, the ultimate good news, and and it's a term that's used that goes way back into earlier scripture. 
and Isaiah used it 400 years earlier and spoke of this good news, this proclamation, this universe-altering declaration where God would declare what he was going to do, declare this good news, and bring it about. And so the, the background here is this gospel, this good news, is, is a special declaration from God himself that is going to turn the whole universe upside down or right side up, whereby God's going to rescue his people and, and deal with the consequences of sin. So Isaiah 52 speaks of it. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. So there's the word, who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. So in the context in Isaiah, there's this declaration of this good news, there's this beautiful thing uh, of, of this good news that comes to the people. It's a declaration that implements change. It implements a rescue. So the promise is not just simple words, but it's words that lead to transformation. Similarly, Jesus quotes Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So in Isaiah 61 as well, this good news comes, and it brings liberty, it brings release, it brings healing, it brings freedom. That's part of the background as Paul talks about this gospel. And that's important for us to understand. It's not simply news that is good. It is the good news whereby God rescues his people from the consequences of their sin and he creates a new humanity living in the kingdom of God. It's about this, this declaration that leads to the kingdom of God where God changes the whole universe. That's the significant here. The significance of what he's saying here. He describes, Paul goes on to describe the content. And you can read in Isaiah about the content of the good news because Isaiah will go on to talk about the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 53, and his sacrifice for us, what he does. But Paul does it here in, in his introduction. He says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the content of the gospel is, is built around who Jesus is. He's descended from David, according to the flesh. He, he is a descendant of David. It's not just saying, well, this is, you know, this is his background. It's, it's speaking of the promises that were given to David for a king that would sit on the throne forever. So Jesus is this ultimate king who's come to reign according to the promise given to David, to reign over the kingdom of God. So in the flesh, he's the natural descendant of David. But it's more than just that. He is the one who's coming to fulfill the promise to reign over God's people, to bring in this flourishing, to bring in the kingdom of God on earth. So he's descended from David according to the flesh. It was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. So Jesus comes. He lives His life. 
his perfect life. He dies on the cross and then he's raised again on the third day, victorious over sin and death. And this is God's declaration that this is my son. This is the one, the chosen one, the approved one, the faithful one, the successful one. This is the one who's earned the right as a human and as God in the flesh to reign over the kingdom. He is the one who has fulfilled our righteousness. And now he is fulfilling even what was given to Adam and Eve to reign over, to have dominion over the earth. Now Jesus is the one who is the ultimate son, the ultimate human, who now is to reign and rule. That's Paul's saying all that wrapped up in these, these short phrases. We're going to learn more about the content here, more about the content of this good news as we go through Romans. But it's, it's important always just to revisit this truth, to, to revisit the truth of the good news of Christ and, and all that it means. It's, it's a declaration. It, this is not just information when we share the gospel each week. It's, it's a declaration of God and His saving work in our lives. It is the power of God for our salvation. It's what God uses in our own hearts to bring transformation, to bring change, to bring the kingdom through us. The declaration of what Christ has done in his death and resurrection. What Christ is going to do, is doing in his reign. What Christ is going to do in the, the completion of his reign when all things are done and he returns to finish all things, to judge the living and the dead. This declaration, this good news is power. For us. Not just information, but transformation. Jesus is God in the flesh. The ultimate and only human being to do what we all were supposed to do. To trust God. To love God. To love others. This human Jesus, God in the flesh, did this to the ultimate degree. He obeyed the Father. He loved others to the ultimate degree, even to the point of death. Dying, giving up his life, denying himself to that point, even to the point of death, but not just any death, even to the point of death on a cross, the, the cruelest form of physical death perhaps ever conceived by mankind. But not just to the point of death on the cross, but death on the cross while he bore the sins of the whole world. He is the only righteous human being. There is none other. So when we speak of the righteousness of God, we must speak of the righteousness of Christ, God in the flesh, the only human being who has fulfilled the law, the only human being who has fulfilled our righteousness, the only human being has, who has done what each of us know we ought to do. We know we must love the Creator who's given us all good things. We know we must love one another as we love ourselves. It's built into our very hearts. The law is really just a, a, an enhancement, a filling out of all the details of that, which, which is in every human heart. And Christ alone is the righteous one. All others have fallen short of the glory of God, but not the God-man, Jesus. And in the righteousness of God put on display in his faithfulness, it didn't just stop there with a faithful life. The righteousness of God is displayed as he took that righteous life and went to the cross for us. Where he went to the cross to offer up himself in your place. To fulfill our righteousness for your sake. You and I are called to obey. We're called to be righteous, but we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all 
under just condemnation. God is just. He's righteous. Same word. And He must deal with sin fully and honestly and completely. He cannot sweep your sin under the rug. He knows it all better than you do or ever will. He is righteous. And yet in His righteousness as well, He is good. And so God in the flesh went to the cross voluntarily to substitute for you. To offer up His righteousness in your place. Having accomplished what you're supposed to do, He accomplished it and then offered that on the cross. And then on that cross, substituted Himself for you, both in accomplishing what you could not, but also in atoning for what you should not have done. He bore the holy justice of God in Himself on that cross for you. He bore the fullness of God's justice for you on that cross. There was not an ounce of holding back from God as He poured out His holy justice, His holy wrath on the Son for you. For every sin you have committed and will commit. This is the righteousness of God on display doing this for us because He so loved us that He gave His only Son for us. And in that work on the cross, Jesus could say, it is finished. It was paid for completely. He substituted for you fully. You'll never do enough good works to come even close to what He did. Good works are important. But we can make our good works an insult to the righteousness of Christ when we think somehow they're earning us something earning us a way into heaven when only Christ can satisfy God's righteousness. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has paid for all your sins. This is the righteousness of God in the good news. This is what Paul is getting after as he explains who Jesus is. This is how God transforms your life, your heart. This is how God transforms marriages and families. This is how God transforms the world. Through the gospel, the good news of God, and the power of God for salvation, for transformation. This is the message, the good news, whereby God brings about the kingdom of God. Jesus has accomplished this and will bring it to its completion in the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, of God's righteousness in Christ. Now, this is really different than how we think, isn't it? If we were to come up with some way to transform the universe, what would we do? How would we bring change about? You can kind of go to fantasy, right? And you think, well, well the Infinity Stones, right? And the, the Marvel series, that's how you bring about something big like that. Or the Genesis bomb from, from Star Trek. Some sort of uh, cosmic, you know, transformation of, of, in some fantasy science fiction way. Or maybe you think, well, you know, Let's be real. Like, how can we do this? Let's, we can bring about transformation by, by voting the right way. Vote Democrat. Vote Republican. Vote Libertarian. Or maybe there's some sort of policy that we need to implement. If we had just better care for everybody. Not that these things are important, but we can put all our, our money on these things as a way to transform it. Transform life. Transform others. But this is not how God thinks of things. This is not God's way to change the universe. God's way to change the universe is the gospel. Is this good news. 
is this good news of God's righteousness in Christ for us. This is how he changes all things. This is how he is, is changing all things. How he will change all things. For Christ has accomplished this. And Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Reigning right now. For what purpose? That the good news might continue to go out. That the church might be built. That all nations might hear and experience the life changing effects of this declaration. He's reigning now for this purpose until the great commission is fulfilled to make the bride beautiful through the truth of the good news. And he will return when that work is done. No sooner, no later. When that work is done, when those promises are fulfilled, he returns to judge the living and the dead. He will banish all evil and sin at that point. The universe will be thoroughly transformed and we will experience the fullness of the kingdom of God forever. It is all in and through this gospel of God's righteousness. Let me ask you, where are you putting your hope for change? There's something wrong with the universe. There's something wrong with me. Where is my hope? Where is your hope? This is where God puts his hope, his certain hope, in the good news. And let me ask you, do you believe this? Or do you functionally believe something else? That's the question that even the very beginning of Romans puts to us. Paul anticipates the effect of the gospel. He anticipates the effect of this good news. That's part of what goes on in the rest of the greeting. In verses 5-7, through seven, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. To bring about the obedience of faith where people believe this and they embrace it and they apply it to their lives and they walk in the truth and they experience the power of the good news, the power of forgiveness, the power of, of new union with Christ to now walk out in their own lives the righteousness of God, this obedience of faith among all the nations, not just here or there, but among all the nations for the sake of his name, for his glory. It's amazing the, the effect of the gospel here. This transformation of obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. It is really encouraging to live in a time of history where we are seeing this happen more and more. We're living in a time that may, maybe feels very tumultuous, maybe very unstable, but as it feels that way, there are some amazing things happening. The gospel is going forth. It is bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And, and because we often live in a world of clickbait and bad news, we fail, to, we fail to see the true faith and the good news and the things that are going on through the good news throughout the world. And there are various news sources you can tap into to find out about how the gospel is impacting the world. And just let me illustrate real briefly, we, we've heard recently about Nepal, of course, where Nepal in one lifetime has gone from zero Christians to three million, uh, as many as three million, 10% of the population. The church is maturing and growing there. Do you know that the two countries that have the highest 
per capita growth rate for Christianity, the two countries? Anyone take a guess, the two countries? First one is Iran. Second one is, anyone guess? Afghanistan. You don't hear that. That's what's going on. This gospel is going forth, changing lives. We have seen more Muslims come to faith in Jesus since 9-11 than over the past 1,400 years. We look at that marker and think what a terrible thing. Well, God has done something in that time. Maybe he's just got his people praying more. And as a result, there's change and transformation going on in the Muslim world. Brothers and sisters, we live in this amazing time where the gospel is going forth, bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And Paul wants the Romans to know this isn't just out there, it's you as well. And so we see in this greeting, he gets personal with them. He says in verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Including you, brothers and sisters in Rome, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There's no better person and no better thing to belong to than Jesus Christ. This is meant for their encouragement and by way of this word, meant for your encouragement. There's no better thing to belong to than Jesus Christ. It can feel good to belong to a good college, be an alumnus of a good college. It can feel good to belong to a good company that does good work and it's good to its employees. It can feel good and it is important to belong to a good and loving family, but there's nothing better than to belong to Jesus Christ. To belong to the lover of your soul. To belong to this Savior and King who reigns over all things for your sake. To belong to the one who gave himself for you and loves you more than you'll ever know. And so Paul wants the Romans to know this is who you are. You're called to belong to Jesus Christ. And, and God wants you to know, brothers and sisters, that you're called to belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to Jesus Christ. This is good news for you to live in. This is your identity. He goes on to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. The, at the core of their identity is the fact that they're loved by God and called to be saints. This truth must be the, the bedrock of our Christian life. Not that you've got it figured out. Not that your faith, your understanding is mature, as important as that is. Not that your faith is strong, as important as that is. Behind any good thing in your life, and your, your faith is this reality of the love of God. He has loved you with an everlasting love. And He's worked in time to draw you to Himself. He sent His only Son for you way before you were born. Thousands of years before you were born. And He accomplished salvation on the cross through His life and death and resurrection. He has loved you from before time. He sent His Son and then in time He sent His Holy Spirit to you. And maybe this is happening for you right now even as you hear the Gospel. The Spirit of God is taking the Word and is saying this is for you. Believe it and live in it. He has loved you and given Himself for you. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved you and worked in your life. And this is at the core of who you are. And you're called to be saints. What an amazing statement. Called to be saints. When the, when the Bible uses the word saint, it means a set apart one. It means one set apart to God. Set apart from sin. Set apart from the world. Set apart from the ways of the devil. Set apart from all these things. Set apart from your natural self 
for God. You're called to be saints, set apart ones. This is your destiny ultimately as a believer. You're called to be set apart. You will be set apart. He will work out the full setting apart of you to be a saint, to be free from sin, to be made like Jesus, full of love for the Father, full of love for others. This is what you're called in the gospel, to be saints. And he says, in line with this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It follows on, I think, of course, grace to you. There's no better grace to know than the grace of the good news, the grace of being counted righteous in Christ, the grace of being forgiven for all your sins, the grace of belonging to the Lord, the grace of having a blessing in your life so that even the hard things are turned for good. Grace, this overwhelming, overcoming, never-ending gift of God that is undeserved, unearned, unasked for, but given in Christ. Grace that superabounds, even if sin should seem to overwhelm you. Grace that is greater than all your sin. Grace that remains even when you fail. Grace that is yours for eternity. Grace that will see you to the end. Grace to you, brother or sister. And peace. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace, this blessing of wholeness. Cessation of hostilities. Cessation of enmity. This this harmony. Peace to you. There is peace in the gospel because your greatest disharmony, your greatest problem has been taken care of. Your enmity towards God and God's just enmity towards you are resolved in the gospel. That is the the core issue for all of humanity. And so when you come to Christ and have faith in Christ and you belong to God, the good news has been applied to your life by faith. You know peace with God. You have peace. And he will work out peace in every other way in time, in his sovereignty, in his goodness. And so Paul can say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Know this peace. Be still. Stop striving. Stop worrying. Focus on Christ crucified and risen for you. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the truth of Romans. This is just one message among many where we will focus on these same things, this good news of the righteousness of God for us in Christ. Let's pray.